The text for this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Luke 2.14, the words of the angels and their praise among the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Uh, Father, we ask that you help us now as we dive into these this declaration that we hear from the multitude of angels. Father, I pray that you give us insight into your holy word, that it would change us, that it would affect our hearts, that it would strengthen our faith, that it would draw those who do not know you to Christ, and for those of us who tend to have wandering hearts, that it would draw us back to you. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The main question that I want you to consider today is this. Are you at peace? Are you at peace in three areas? Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with your fellow man? And do you have peace in your heart? Is the state of your mind a state of peace? Peace is the longing of every human heart, whether they would admit it or not. But peace is hard to come by. Peace is not something that is easily attained. In fact, most attempts to gain peace fail. Every attempt to gain peace outside of Christ fails. Every attempt to gain peace outside of Christ fails, which means most attempts at peace in this world fail. And every attempt that you strive for, for peace outside of faith in Christ, fails. Those are facts that are very clear to us in the scripture. In fact, almost every sin that's ever committed is simply a doomed attempt at gaining peace. Even murder. Even someone who's had anger building inside them and they need to let their soul rest, it's a doomed attempt thinking, if I kill the person I'm angry with, then maybe finally, after unleashing vengeance, my heart will be at peace. How does this square with what the angels said? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. 
That's what we're asking the question. What does that mean? Peace on earth. Is it really true? Matthew 2.16 tells us that when Herod found out that a king was going to be born to the Jews, and when he had been tricked by the wise men, Matthew 2.16 says he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That type of peace on earth? Have you ever lived in a town where every male child two and under was slaughtered? Can you imagine the mourning and the weeping? All because another baby was born and the angels said, peace on earth? So what, what does it mean, peace on earth, when violence comes from the birth of this child? The whole Bible, let me tell you something you already know, is about Jesus, right? The Old Testament points to Jesus. The Gospels give us the account of Jesus' life. And the epistles unpack the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension into heaven. The epistles unpack it. So we need to unpack the phrase, peace on earth. We need to understand what it means. If that's where your joy will come from. And so... You can see in the notes, in this verse, we see first that there's glory to God and then peace on earth. And I'm going to argue that the New Testament unpacks the peace that Christ brings in these three categories. Peace with God, peace with man, and peace in the heart of man. The reason why it starts, the angel's declaration starts with glory to God in the highest is because peace comes from God. It means that no created thing, no person created can ascertain peace. Because when peace comes, God gets the glory. This is clear all throughout Paul's letters in the New Testament. He starts his letters like this. Titus 1.4 To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Grace comes from God. Glory to Him. Peace comes from God. All glory to Him. And then in Philemon 3, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.1, his letter to Timothy. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace 
from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason why it's glory to God in the highest is because he's the one who's working, he's the one who's acting, and he's the only one that can give the type of peace that all of us need. In fact, not only is peace from God, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. God is described as the God of peace. So glory be to God. So what does this word, arene, which is the word that gets translated peace, mean? Uh, One of the lexicons says, it's a set of favorable circumstances involving peace and tranquility. Uh, The meaning is peace and tranquility may be expressed in some languages in the negative form. For example, to be without trouble or to have no worries. Or the word can literally mean to sit down in one's own heart. To have peace of the heart is to have your heart sit down. To be a resting rather than a raging. It's this state of tranquility or peace or absence of worry. And it's a common word we see all throughout the New Testament. And we must begin by saying because of the birth of Christ, who's eventually going to go to a cross, die for sinners, be resurrected and ascend to the right hand of God and who will come again, We must say that first and foremost, the birth of this child and his life's work, its purpose is to bring about peace with God. We have to start there. If you don't have peace with God, you have nothing. Who cares how good your day goes today? If you don't have peace with God, and eternal destruction awaits you. If you don't have peace with God, you can't have any sort of peace. You can't have peace with man, and you can't have peace in your heart. Because any apparent peace can always come with, but there's a fearful expectation of falling into the hands of a God who's angry with sinners. And so we read in the New Testament that Christ brings peace to sinners. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. We're in the middle of Paul's argument against all mankind. He's like a prosecuting attorney saying both Jews and Gentiles are guilty before God. And what he says in verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He says, there's a lot of you out there who think God's good with you because you haven't been struck by lightning yet. You kind of look at other people and you judge yourself better, even though you yourself do the same things. But because your life's gone better than you think it ought to, if God's upset with you, you think God's okay. And so you take for granted God's patience with you. His time he's given you to repent and turn to him, you take that for granted. And he says, what really is happening is you're storing up more wrath for the day of judgment. Meaning every time a sinner sins without trusting in Christ, it's more wrath and more wrath and more wrath that will be revealed in one moment on one day like a flood. The fierce, almighty wrath of God will come upon every sinner outside of Christ. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no good ones. God doesn't save the good ones because there is no good ones. There's not one. Jew and Gentile all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if falling short of the glory of God is the definition of sin, then think how often you sin. Anything you do that's selfish is sin. Anything you do that's not for the glory of God is sin. Any snack you eat without a thankful heart, recognizing who it comes from, is sin. And if that's the definition of sin, not just murder and adultery and all those other things which we do in our heart. Scripture says if you're angry with someone, you're committed murder in your heart. If you've lusted after a man or woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. So there's no one that's good. And there's no one that has peace with God outside of Christ. Bible's crystal clear on this. John 3.36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so the first question is this, do you have peace with God? If you were to die today, do you know that you have peace with God. Because if you don't have peace with God, you won't have peace anywhere in your life. You're created to be in relationship with God. Here's what God's done for us. In Romans 5, verse 1, we read, Therefore, since we've been justified, that word means found not guilty between the, before the law court of God. Since we've been found not guilty by faith, we have 
peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died in place of sinners. Sinners deserve the wrath of God. Jesus stood in their place, swallowed it up, bore the wrath of God on the cross so that you, when you trust in that work of salvation by Christ, by faith, you have peace with God. It'll never change. Before the law books in heaven, not guilty. I have peace with that one legally because of Christ. And that is good news of great joy. The biggest question that needs to be answered for all human beings is, how can I be reconciled to God? And then if you look at verse 6 of Romans 5, he says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Most people think that God will save those who clean their life up, who become good enough. But the Bible speaks nothing of the sorts. The Bible says there is no good ones. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that while we were weak in our sin, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. <laughs> Hallelujah. Because that's who I am. And he came for me. And he came for the ungodly. And he died for the ungodly. And in verse 7 it says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is incredible good news. Incredibly good news. In Isaiah 53, it says, this death was according to his knowledge, which means he knew every sin you've done and every sin you will do. And knowing all that, he died for you. Isn't that good news for the ungodly, for those sinners that need grace? That Jesus didn't just tell the Father, I suppose I'll die for them. And then after he dies for them, saying, well, I didn't know they were that bad. With all knowledge, Christ stood in the place of every sinner that will turn to him. And so we read, but God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified, past tense, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled 
shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Verse 10 says we were enemies. And so for us to be at peace with God, we see in the scripture that we could do none of the work to bring it about. Glory to God in the highest because it's through Christ that our peace with God comes. If it was dependent upon you, you would never get it. You could never work it. How do you work yourself out of an eternal hole? If you sin against an eternal God, eternal punishment is what you deserve. And so it took the eternal Son of God to stand in your place and swallow up his wrath. And so, when the angel said peace on earth, what he meant is, for those whom God has turned the lights on, the, and given the eyes of faith to trust in Christ, they can have peace with God. But not only that, Paul and those who uh, have written the epistles and the letters also tell us that through Christ's work, we can have peace with man. In Hebrews 12, 14, the writer to the Hebrews says this, strive for peace, it's that same word, with everyone, and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, maybe you've heard that verse before, and the highlight is always on holiness. You got to have holiness or you're not going to see the Lord. But strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled those who experience the grace of christ can have the roots of bitterness die just like a tree that puts roots out underneath of a, a sidewalk and begins to crack that sidewalk and and make it worse and worse as it grows so those who trust in christ in our given a new heart, can begin to have that root of bitterness die. And when the roots of bitterness die, peace with man becomes possible. In James 3.13, here's how James puts it. Who is wise and understanding among you? And by his Good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness is kind of like a punching bag. Those who have wisdom are not just responsive to one another and enemies. And then it says, but if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Do you see the demonic in your home? The demonic looks like bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, and boasting that those things are from God. That you're so right that those are from God. He says, don't mar the truth like that. That's not from God. That's from the devil. And then he says, for verse 16, for wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be every disorder, or there will be disorder in every vile practice. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. That's an adjective form of arene. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, and impartial and and sincere. And verse 18 says, and a harvest of righteousness, a combined load of righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you want to grow in your sanctification, become more Christ-like, You can't earn your salvation, but once you're saved, you'll be conformed into the image of Christ. You want righteousness? Well, here's where righteousness comes from. It's sown in the soil of peace by those who make peace. Our sanctification, our peace with man comes through our sanctification in Christ. And then he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? This is James 4.1. Is it not this, that your passions are a war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Christ died to give you peace with God and peace with man so that your selfishness can be killed and that your roots of bitterness can dry up and that you can have these fruits that are described meekness and and bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts can be put away in Romans 14:17 Paul says this the kingdom of god is not a matter of eating and drinking So this is a Christian fighting chapter. This is a chapter written to the Roman Christians saying, you're going to fight about all sorts of third and fourth tier issues. Things that are not central to the gospel. Like what kind of foods can you eat? What day can you worship on? You know, what what celebrations are you going to have? And when are you going to have them? And it's in the midst of that 
chapter, he says this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual a building. That's the goal of the Christian life. Per, we're to pursue what makes for peace and mutual a building. There's no such thing as the Christian that doesn't care about having peace with fellow man. Because we're commanded to have peace with fellow man. As far as it depends on us, that is. In Ephesians 2, we don't have time to really spend much time here, but he talks about how through Christ, arch enemies are united. Jews and Gentiles are united into one body. Ephesians 2.13, but now Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinance, or the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might re reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see that? It's both peace with God in Christ and peace with man. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then in verse 22 he says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You show me two Christians that can't get along and they both think there's no hope. I come in and say, that's a bunch of baloney. That's not true. You mean to say that Christ can reconcile you to God? When you were still a sinner, when Christ knew how nasty you were, he could forgive you, but two forgiven Christians can't become selfless and forgive one another by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside them? No. There can be peace on earth with man and God and man and man when you're walking by faith in Christ. This is why I'll give you one example. In Luke 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that Jesus is talking to the crowds and he's talking to the big group of disciples, those who are following him. That doesn't mean they're all saved. But after he gets done with the Beatitudes, he leans in to those who are born again. He says this, but I say to, but I say to you who hear, so he has been talking to the crowds. And now he says, but now I'm talking to those of you who have 
ears to hear. And what does he say? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Peace on earth in regards to peace with man on earth is not determined upon your circumstances ultimately or even whether the other person will return the favor. Because we're called essentially to, you're going to have enemies that hate you, but what do you do? You love them back. If you can love your enemies and you can pray for your enemies, there's going to be no root of bitterness that springs up and hurts you and those around you. So peace on earth then isn't determined ultimately by the other person because they could remain your enemy and you could remain good-hearted towards them because Christ was good-hearted towards you when you were a rebel. Thirdly, let's talk about peace in the heart. Paul writes to the Colossians and in chapter 3, verse 12, and he's, he's already argued how the Christians in Colossae are, have their identity in Christ. They're saved by Christ. Now he's telling them how to live. He says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Paul, the, Paul knows the church is going to be full of sinners. That's why he gives the command to bear with one another. And if anyone has a, play, a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then look what he says in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So the New Testament talks about not only peace between man and God and man and man, but the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. You know, all the statistics show that anxiety and depression is increasing at an incredible rate and has been for a long time in America. As we get richer, as we supposedly get more knowledge and wisdom, our lives become easier with, with technology, all these things, lo and behold, depression and anxiety is going up. And then when COVID hit, it jumped like 8% according to uh, the statistics. 41% of Americans say they struggle with anxiety. And there's a whole lot more that are lying or not telling the truth. I'll tell you that. Because there's no way the peace of Christ is ruling the hearts of 59% of America. 
And so we see that peace can rule the hearts of Christians. Look at Philippians 4. Beginning in verse 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That seems unreasonable, does it not? Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Then he says, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He says, it's not crazy to say rejoice always because when is the Lord not with you, Christian? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Listen, here's what the scripture says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then what will happen? And the peace of God. I wonder what that's like. You think God's ever worried a day in his life? No. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world. Will what? Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's a command to how you think. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Not just, you won't only get the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, but the God of peace will be with you. And so here's, here's what he said. I taught this to Edie and Georgia the other night. As we talk about our worries every night, casting them to the Lord because he cares for us. We're, we're called to cast our anxieties on him. But here's, what I th- here's how I think this passage can be illustrated. So let's say right here where the pulpit is, this is the present anxiety that comes to mind, the worry. So it comes to your mind and there's two options. One is start thinking about it. You start coming over here. Over here is anxiety. Over here is depression. So keep coming over here. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to run worst case scenarios. I'm going to think about all the ways it could go wrong. I'm going to think about uh, how it's gone wrong in the past. I'm just going to think, think, think. And over here, you'll only ever be left with one thing, and that's anxiety. The absence of peace. And the reason why a person ended here is by a choice that they made at the moment the worry came to their mind to rather than pray, they're going to think and they're going to figure and they're going to scheme and they're going to look at it. So you never end up here by accident. You're not a worrier because your grandma was a worrier. And because... Her mom was a worrier. You're a worrier because you sin with your thinking. At the moment of anxiety and worry, 
But what are we called to do in this text? Don't be anxious about anything, but what? Pray about everything. Okay, here it comes. I'm worried about this. Lord, I'm giving it to you. You're sovereign. You're good. You're in control of everything. Even my suffering works in the eternal weight of glory greater than I can imagine. You're wiser than me. And so I pray to you. I give you this worry. And I'm deciding to trust in you. And here I want to worry about it. No, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to trust in you. And I'm going to look at your attributes. And I'm going to see why you're trustworthy. And then all of a sudden, the world looks at you and says, how in the world, in the light of these circumstances, do you seem to have a peace that surpasses our understanding? Well, let me tell you, I'm in this circumstance right now, but the God of peace is right here with me. And I talk to him and I bring it to him. And so, not only can you have peace with God and peace with man, but you can have the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And I know there's some of you skeptical out there. And you want to say, yeah, but. And I want to say, I know what you're thinking. And you want to say, it's not that easy. And I want to say, amen, it's not. Because everything I just described to get on this road, Paul called the fight of faith. He called it finishing a race, which means it's hard. A marathon is hard. A fight is hard. And you have the choice. How many worries are going to come to your mind throughout a day? How many fights of faith to believe true things rather than run the worst case scenario? That's exhausting. It is. And that's what living by faith in a fallen world is like. The life I live in, the, in this present world, I live by faith, Paul said. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it is hard. And it's not easy. And you're never going to always be at peace because you don't always win the fight. We'll give in to our thinking. We'll walk down this road. But never end up on this side and pretend like you're a... How did I get here? It's because of my grandma. It's because of my personality. No, it's not. You have the Holy Spirit. You have new life in Christ. You have the truths of God and his love for you seen in Christ in the scriptures. You have other Christians fighting the fight of faith alongside you. You can fight and you can have the peace of Christ that rule your heart. But the peace you get today, you'll have to fight for tomorrow morning. When you wake up until Christ returns or we see him in glory. But on this earth, you can, and if you're a Christian, you do have peace with God right now. You can have peace with fellow man, even the ones you don't like very much. And you can have the peace of Christ rule your hearts even when your circumstances are bad. The last text, the last example I want to give you is You've heard me say it before. When David was running from Absalom, who's trying to kill him, and he has no place to sleep. In fact, as he goes to bed, Absalom 
has the plan to kill David in the night. I don't know if you've had a day that bad before where your own child's trying to murder you. But he wrote Psalm 3. It's a morning psalm. And he wrote Psalm 4 that's an evening psalm. And both of them have to do with sleeping. In Psalm 3 he says, How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. He believed true things. I cried out to the Lord. He prayed. And he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept and I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. He remembered true things about God and he prayed. And now he says, thousands around me, I'm okay. And then the very next Psalm that evening, in verse 5, he says, offer right sacrifices. And he says, this is what they are. Put your trust in the Lord. Difficult circumstances, trust in the Lord. There are many who will say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David says, if you hear my prayer, if you lift up your face to my prayer, here's what he says. You've put more joy in my heart than when their grain and their wine abound. When they have good circumstances and I have bad circumstances, I'll have more joy than them because you hear my prayer. And then he says this verse, which you all ought to memorize. Verse 8, Psalm 4, 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You won't be able to sleep in difficult circumstances if you believe something else will bring about your peace other than the Lord. If you, if you need circumstances to change, no peace. Why? Because you can't control all your circumstances. If you need someone to forgive you, no peace. Why? Because you can't control the other person. But David, when his own son is trying to kill him, says, I'm going to lie down my head and I'm going to sleep because you alone can make me dwell in safety. I'm going to lay my head down in peace. Because the eternal Son of God took on human flesh and was born in Bethlehem, we can have peace. Our peace is not nirvana, a state of consciousness in our minds like the Buddhists say. It's not positive thinking. Our peace was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He's a person. He's the eternal Son of God taken on flesh. He died on a cross for you. He rose from the grave and he's at the right hand of God. And if you seek peace anywhere else other than Christ, you'll never find it. And it's my prayer that you'll know that peace. Father, thank you for the hope we have, even in a fallen world down here on earth. What the angel said was not a pie in the sky hope, but it was a reality, peace on earth. Because our peace showed up in the flesh. Father, I pray that we all would walk by faith in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.